The uh, scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning is um, not quite as extensive as you see listed in the bulletin. We're not going to be reading uh, chapters 42 through 50. Uh, That just happens to set the overall setting for this part of the story of Joseph. Um, So we're actually picking up the beginning of chapter 42 in terms of the storyline. We had finished chapter 41 with all of the countries uh, surrounding Egypt uh, coming to Egypt during the time of the famine, which uh, Pharaoh's dreams had predicted, which Joseph had interpreted, which uh, catapulted him to become uh, virtually the ruler all over all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And during this time, the seven years famine, so severe, so widespread, that not only was Egypt affected, but apparently uh, all of uh, eastern northern Africa and the uh, western or the eastern end there of the Mediterranean area. So it affected the area that we would call the area of Israel. All of that area affected by this tremendously great famine. It's here that the story of Joseph in Egypt begins to intersect then with the story of his brothers and with his father once again uh, because now they become reunited. Uh, now the dreams that Joseph had as a young man are fulfilled because uh, the brothers and uh, Jacob's father and all the family come down to Egypt and Joseph is the ruler. Joseph is the one who is lord over them as they come. Um, So when this happens, there is a reunion between Joseph and his brothers. It's a remarkable story. If you haven't read the whole great historical saga of the life of Joseph recently, you, you should do so. And you should try to read it all in, in one great sitting. It's perhaps the most powerful story in all of Scripture next to that of Christ. Because the love and the grace and the forgiveness of Joseph toward his brothers is more vivid, uh, more powerful, more moving than any other kind of story in all of Scripture, second to the love and grace that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see is that the heart of Joseph is a heart of forgiving grace. So Joseph settles all of his family in Goshen, uh, which is part of Egypt. They're able to live there as their own community uh, for the next 17 years until their father Jacob dies. That brings us to chapter 50. It brings us to chapter 50, verse 15. For this morning, we're going to look at the dynamics of what begins to happen, what takes place when Jacob, the father, dies and what takes place between Joseph then and his brothers. And I want you to appreciate it's a study in guilt. But it's also a study in grace. But as a study in guilt and a study in grace, it needs to be connected to Christ. So it causes us to think about the similar kinds of things in terms of studying the person or work of Christ. So, let's read Genesis 50, 
uh, beginning of verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So once again, uh, to outline the examination of this story, we're going to consider it as a study in guilt and a study in grace, and then look at the themes that are revealed there and recognize how they reflect upon the study of Christ. You know, there's a big story here. There's a big picture here. Because included in the life of Joseph are significant things that he says about the sovereignty of God in terms of what has happened to him. So we really could look at this and say, what are the themes? Guilt, grace, sovereignty. Guilt, grace, sovereignty. The sovereignty of God over the guiltiness of man and the experience of God's saving grace. The sovereignty of God over all of that. We see it in the life of Joseph. It shows up then in the person and work of Christ. So, the big truth. So let's understand the big truth right from the beginning. To experience, look at it this way, the story of Joseph is a forecast into the future as to what God is going to do in his son Jesus. So to experience the forgiveness of our sin through Christ, to experience the workings of grace, we must own our own sinful guilt against Christ. Trust in God's sovereignty that he has truly brought the greatest good out of the greatest evil. So, as we get into this, you'll see how this lesson is embedded in the story of Joseph and his brothers, but then how it is, in fact, the heart of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so we begin with this study in guilt. Um, this all involves looking at the, the brothers' reaction to the news that their father has died. And what does their reaction show? Now, when we say brothers here, we actually are excluding Benjamin. Uh, the younger brother of Joseph, the youngest of the twelve, had nothing to do with what the older brothers of Joseph did against him. 
So we're thinking about the ten uh, against Joseph himself. Um, what we see uh, is that there's a guilty conscience kind of thing going on. Uh, the response to the death of their father evokes not just grief, but it evokes guilt, feelings of guilt. Uh, they recognize, we see in verse 15, that Joseph had good reasons not to love them. They recognize that Joseph had excellent reasons to seek revenge. They recognize clearly all the evil which they had done to him. Now, that's the, the indicator of guilt feelings. It's the indicator of guilt igniting their moral conscience. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks about the conscience in Romans chapter 2. He essentially says that the conscience can bear witness within a person, even with conflicting kinds of accusations and excuses. Active conscience. The, the conscience of the brothers uh, at work here in the aftermath of their father dying, uh, accusing them of crimes and evils that they had done against Joseph. We ought to note that when a person's moral compass isn't completely destroyed and the destruction of the moral compass can happen. Again, the Apostle Paul talks about the conscience being, as it were, seared with a hot iron. There are people who virtually have no conscience. But, but when the moral compass is still at work, and the conscience is still active, what happens is that the conscience causes people to remember the things which they have done in hurt and harm and evil toward other people. The brothers recognize the evil which they have done. Now, the path of this guilt and what this guilt stimulates can go in two directions which at first seem to be virtually the same but which actually are divergent in terms of their moral and spiritual significance. So, guilt acknowledges evil. Guilt moves someone to a recognition of his or her evil which you've done to someone else. But the divergent path is between the difference in admitting your guilt and confessing your guilt. So let me explain this distinction. Someone can be moved by guilt, by their guilty conscience, to acknowledge and recognize that they've harmed someone else. They've done something wrong. They've done something which they should not have done. But such an admission does not mean that the perpetrator is actually sorry for what he or she has done. It only means that the perpetrator knows that he or she is responsible for the bad thing that's happened to somebody else. Uh, it doesn't mean that he wishes he hadn't done it. It doesn't mean that he's sorry that he's done it. It doesn't mean that given the chance he wouldn't do it again. Now, why is this important to us? Sometimes this is exactly how we are with 
God. God knows we have sinned. We know we have sinned. But just admitting to God that we have sinned does not mean we are sorry that we've sinned or that we hope and pray we'll never do it again. On the other hand, confession of guilt has the important elements of what we find in an admission of guilt, but it goes far, far deeper. In fact, a true confession of guilt is nothing other than a work of God's grace. It's admitting that we've done something wrong. It's admitting that we're responsible for some evil. But it means as well that we are genuinely sorry for what we've done. We're genuinely concerned and sorry for how we have hurt another human being. It means that we wish we had never done this evil thing. It means we actually repent of having done it, that we are seriously engaged in in praying and seeking and trying that we would never do it again. Now listen to how Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He's written to the church at Corinth to address and correct sin that's going on. And he analyzes how the Corinthian church has responded to his correction. He writes these words, Yet now I rejoice, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So the apostle acknowledges, or the the apostle here gives us this basis for, on the one hand, just admitting our sin, and the other hand, truly confessing our sin. That a genuine confession is motivated by this godly sorrow that leads to repentance. So the question here is with respect to looking at the brothers of Joseph. Are they admitting their sin, or are they confessing their sin. We have to see which direction the story leads to tell us which of these it is. We also notice their fear in terms of their response to the death of their father. They fear payback. Um, Some kind of reprisal, some kind of revenge now that their father is dead. Now, they, they have this fear in spite of the fact that 17 years earlier, Joseph had reconciled with his brothers in the most powerful way. If you were to go back to chapter 45 and look at verses uh, uh, 5 and 8 and 15, here are, the, here are the things that you would read. Joseph says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 8. So it, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Verse 15. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. Kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. Now, why did they doubt Joseph? Why, after all of these years, did they, they doubt him? Because the guilt of their own past sins... That's one reason. And because they had actually lived and lived out 
the revenge culture. There's an earlier story in the life of Jacob and his sons going all the way back to chapter 34. As Jacob and his sons are are coming into uh, the the whole area of Israel, um, the son's sister is kidnapped and raped by one of the pagan sons of one of the pagan tribal chieftains. And in response to that, the twelve, the ten brothers, led by Simeon and Levi, make a deceptive proposal. Sure, we'll let you have our sister in marriage, but not to you who are uncircumcised. Circumcise yourself, and then we will allow our, that'll be the bride price for our sister becoming uh, the, the bride and wife of the chieftain's son. And so this entire village, this clan, went through the process of circumcision. The third day, when the pain was the most intense and the men were virtually completely disabled, Simeon and Levi went into the village and killed every single male. And the rest of the brothers came in and pillaged everything and took the women and children as prisoners and the animals as booty. To the shame of Jacob, who then had to move his family miles and miles and miles away in order to protect them. The brothers had lived out the revenge culture kind of reprisal and payback. Now, that's why. That's why they're thinking that maybe their own brother will forget the fact that he wants reconciled with them. Dad's gone. The influence of Jacob the father's gone. And he's got all the power in the world to do anything and everything to them. Again, this is part of the analysis of guilt. Guilt evokes remembrance of our past sins. The conscience will make us feel the guilt again and again and again. Where that conscience is not reconciled by the grace of God, it will stand again and again as an accuser of us with a power to cause us to remember things we long wish were forgotten. Now, out of the sphere and concern, the brothers then took action. And so we should consider what the action shows. Verses 16 through 18. First, they send a message, and then they come in person. Uh, The message concerns something which their father had communicated to them and urged upon them before he died. Uh, Verse 17, the father had said, Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now I want you to notice that this this message has a double request or or a double basis for its request for grace and forgiveness of, of, of the brother's sin. First, it's forgive the transgression of your brothers, an appeal to blood family relationship. But then notice, 
The next petition, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. That's an entirely different basis. Uh, Jacob clearly knew what the brothers had done to his son Joseph. The fact that Jacob urges his sons to be reconciled to Joseph, urging Joseph to forgive his sons, tells you what about Jacob and his perspective on what the sons had done to him and persuading him that his son Joseph had been dead. They broke his heart. Clearly, he's forgiven his sons. Clearly, he has embraced his bad boys with grace and love and forgiveness. And he's urging his son Joseph to do likewise. Why? Well, first, because they are your brothers. But secondly, whatever they were before, they are now servants of the God who has watched over your life, Joseph. Servants of the God that I, your father, have always served. Now, their second action after the message is to show up in person. Verse 18. The brothers come to Joseph and fall down before him and declare to him. We are your servants. In essence, we have come to you and we have surrendered to you to receive from you whatever you choose to do. There is no greater action in all of Scripture that shows sinful human beings taking full responsibility for the evil which they have done. Going to the one who has power of life and death over their lives, surrendering In essence, saying by that surrender, you do with us whatever you in your lordship over us choose to do. Because we have no basis at all to stand before you. We know what we deserve. We can only beg, and hope for mercy. The second study is a study in grace. It looks at Joseph. It's in two parts. It's what Joseph does, and it's what Joseph says. So in the last half of verse 17, we see what Joseph does. We see Joseph wept when his brother spoke to him. Now, this is the same tenderness of heart affection which Joseph had shown earlier to his brother, some 17 years earlier, when he had first revealed himself to them. He had said to them at that time, 
Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. And he had kissed all of his brothers and he had wept upon them. What Joseph does in this weeping now is out of his love for his brothers. A deep love for his brothers. It shows the true intent and reality of his grace-based reconciliation. Full forgiveness. Mercy freely given. This is unmerited, unconditional grace. To be treated, not as you deserve to be treated, but so much better than you deserve to be treated, in total acceptance and love. Then verse 19, look at what Joseph says. His brothers fall down before him in surrender. And he says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be alive as they are today. Do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. In the message... Joseph is declaring to his brothers that in the workings of God's reconciling and saving grace, God is exercising his great lordship, his great sovereign rule over all things, so that even when they intended evil, God had already planned, God had already purposed that their evil was going to be his way of bringing a great deliverance to that part of the world during these years of severe famine. The lesson here. God had enabled Joseph to see that where sin is abounded, grace abounds even more. God had enabled Joseph to see that God works out everything according to the counsel of his own will. And that's why Joseph can be full of grace toward his brothers. God was not allowing the evil done against him to be senseless evil. For God had enabled Joseph to see that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to God's purposes. Brothers and sisters, it is likewise so in your life. You and I can't see the end of what God intends with respect to the evil things that are done in this world. But the story of Joseph and the New Testament reflections upon the sovereignty of God tell us again and again and again what men intend for evil. God will ultimately 
work unto his glory and unto the greatest good for those who know him and who love him and who follow Christ. Now, bringing this to Christ himself, a study in Christ. The connection between this last episode in Joseph's life and the gospel story of Christ is profound. Joseph's final story is all about how the sovereignty of God works in and through the evil of men to bring about the saving goodness and grace of God. That's the theme of Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, uh, seven weeks after uh, Christ has been crucified and raised from the dead. The very first time that the gospel is proclaimed under the new covenant context, the very first time that the gospel is proclaimed after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we find that Peter is using these same themes to structure his gospel message. It's the evil of what human beings have done. It's the sovereignty of God taking that evil and bringing about good. And because of what God has done, there is grace for those who will trust in Christ. Look at Acts 2, beginning at verse 22. Jumping right into the important heart of Peter's message, he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So first, the reality of guilt. Peter says to the men of Israel, you crucified, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless, lawless, wicked, pagan men. You killed Jesus through them. Through them you put him to death. Peter lays the blame for the crime of killing the Son of God directly upon these religious Jews who are now involved in the religious ceremony in terms of Pentecost. He says they're guilty of the death of Christ, even though they used pagan Romans to do it. Secondly, the sovereignty of God. Verse 23, Jesus was delivered over to the hands of sinful men, quote, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, unquote. So even though the people of Israel are morally and criminally guilty of putting Jesus to death, they acted within and according to the sovereign and predetermined plan of God. And that is how great God is. That the greatest crime, the greatest sin, the greatest evil ever done by the human race against another human being, the truly innocent human being, the truly sinless Son of God, that evil, God was fully able to use, even to purpose to use it, to bring salvation to the human race. Because on that cross, God made him who knew no sin to be sin 
on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. God raised him up, it says in verse 24, freeing Jesus from the agony of death because it was not possible for death to keep its hold upon him. And then in verse 33, Peter says, exalted now to the right hand of God, he, Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you see and hear now. And in verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Just as God had raised up Joseph to be Lord over all of Egypt, so God raised up his son Jesus from the dead to be Lord over all, the Christ who has come to save, all according to God's sovereign plan. And then the grace of salvation. In verse 37, we read that those listening were cut to the heart. They felt their guilt. Their move to seek from Peter, what shall we do? What are we to do? And Peter responds then with this invitation to embrace the grace of God in Christ. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and for your children and to all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls unto himself. So, the gospel must always be, first, a study in the nature of human guilt. But then it must also likewise be a study in the nature of God's redemptive grace as it is focused in the Son of God and His death and resurrection. But finally, it is always going to be a study in the nature of God's sovereignty and His ability to take the greatest evil that has ever existed and bring out of it the greatest good even salvation in the name of the Son. Because God foreordained that his Son would be the seed of the woman and the seed of Abraham, in whom all of the world would be blessed. God foreordained that the evil intended by wicked human beings in crucifying the Son of God would be purposed by God to be the all-sufficient atoning sacrifice for sin. So that, in the name of Jesus, reconciliation based in grace, full of forgiveness, full of mercy, freely given, grace unconditional, grace unmerited, could be offered to all those who would place their faith and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. So that you would be treated, not as you deserve, but so much better than you deserve in total acceptance and the love of God. Amen.
Father, we thank you that you have given to us in Jesus a wonderful and merciful Savior. In his name, amen.